New CDC guidance for pregnant women and vaccines. Women are very hesitant to take any kind of medication during pregnancy. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County is being sued after another jail suicide. They, of course, wish the medical staff had taken his suicide threat seriously. A look at vaccine requirements in local venues, plus our summer music series continues with Boostive. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has issued new guidance urging expectant mothers to get the COVID-19 vaccine, as new data indicates that pregnant and recently pregnant women are at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. Joining me with more is Dr. Kathleen Piaquadio, an OBGYN specializing in maternal fetal medicine at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Piaquadio, welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk on this issue. You know, the latest data from the CDC indicates that only 23% of pregnant women have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Why do you think that number is so low? I think women are very hesitant to take any kind of medication during pregnancy. And I think there's a big hesitancy about the COVID vaccines, especially Moderna and Pfizer, because they are um, new technology. Um, And in addition, there is a lot of misinformation out there about um, potential side effects, uh, you know, adverse uh, government reactions, all kinds of crazy things to getting the COVID uh, vaccine. Let's talk about the risks, though. I, I mean, what are some of the increased risks outlined by the CDC for pregnant women who get infected with COVID-19? Well, if you are pregnant and you get COVID-19 disease, you are more likely to get the severe form of illness, which usually is a respiratory form. You are more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to go to the ICU. And um, most of the studies show not more likely to die, but really more likely to have severe illness. And as you mentioned, the guidance, it also cautions an increased risk for recently pregnant women. Why is that? Well, the changes from pregnancy do not subside as soon as the baby comes out. The postpartum period really is up to about 12 weeks after someone delivers a baby. So during pregnancy, you are relatively immunocompromised because of the changes in pregnancy that allow us to carry babies. So you are less 
um, armed to fight any kind of infection well when you are pregnant. And what are you hearing from your patients who are hesitant about vaccination? Well, I've heard many different things. Um, I've heard anything from there's a microchip in the vaccine so that the government can trace you, um, that the vaccine contains penicillin and they're allergic to penicillin. And then that there have been uh, one of my patients this morning that I was trying to persuade said, well, there's been 12,000 deaths from a COVID vaccine. I said, yes, but those are not just in pregnant women. And there are 1 million deaths from COVID worldwide. I said, so when you look at that discrepancy and what the risk of not being vaccinated represent to you, um, you know, I strongly encourage you to get the vaccine because if you get sick, you're going to get really sick. Um, The other reason I encourage people to get the vaccine when they're pregnant is because those antibodies that they're going to make to the vaccine are going to cross the placenta and provide protection for the fetus. And for moms who breastfeed, the antibodies also cross the placenta and provide protection for for the baby. What about women who aren't pregnant? Some women say they've experienced changes in their menstrual cycle after taking the vaccine. Is this something you're hearing? And is this something that's being researched to your knowledge? I have not heard um, that particular complaint. I have heard um, that women are concerned about infertility after the vaccine, but there was a recent large study done that was published in JAMA that showed fertility is not affected by the vaccine. And there, you know, there are many different things that that can upset a menstrual cycle, like stress, um, differences in routine, having some other kind of illness. Um, Sometimes people just have an anobligatory cycle. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that it's due to a vaccine. You know, why do you think this guidance from the CDC is just now being given more than a year into this pandemic? I think everyone is always very cautious to make any recommendations about new technology, new medications in the pregnant population. Um, ACOG and the the American College of OBGYN and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, who are the two premier societies that guide um, obstetrical care in the United States and even worldwide, they just came out at the end of July recommending. They recommended before, but with more cautious approach. And now they're just recommending that you get the vaccine. And I think we've had now over, well over 100,000 women vaccinated with no adverse reported sequelae from the vaccines. And so we have um, better safety data. And um, there's now a database uh, from that women can call into and check but the vaccine appears to be very safe in pregnancy and the risk of not getting the vaccine and getting the actual COVID illness um, poses much more significant risk to the patient and also to her baby. I've been speaking with Dr. Kathleen Piaquadio, an OBGYN at Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Piaquadio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. The family of a Vista man who died by suicide in county jail last year is the latest to sue San Diego County for wrongful death. The suit filed this week is one of dozens pending over the deaths or serious injuries of people held in San Diego County jails. 
The family claims the death of 33-year-old Joseph Morton would not have happened if Sheriff's Department staff and contracted medical personnel had followed the department's own suicide prevention policies. Records show that two people died by suicide in county jail last year and more than 50 made suicide attempts. It remains unclear what part COVID isolation requirements may have played in those incidents. Joining me is freelance writer Kelly Davis, whose report appears in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maureen. From your report, it seems clear that Joseph Morton was experiencing both addiction and mental health issues before and during the time he was in custody. Can you give us the background on why he was locked up? Yes. Yeah, so, so Mr. Morton, he had recently been laid off from his job. Uh, he was a salesman at a car dealership and there were COVID-19 cutbacks. And um, he had had a history of drug addiction. You know, he had moved to San Diego to to try to get a new start. But when he lost his job, he, he fell back into addiction. He was suffering from depression, kind of triggered by the the loss of a much-loved family member, and he, he was running out of money. So he used a, a fake gun and tried to rob a woman in the parking lot of, of a Walmart. And unfortunately, the woman had a, a couple kids in, in her car. And so that kind of compounded the charges that he faced when he was arrested. And uh, he was arrested for that. And he seems to have talked a lot about suicide to the deputies who took him in and the medical staff once he got there, didn't he? So actually, a few days before he was arrested, he had tried to kill himself, but a neighbor intervened, and and Mr. Morton ended up spending three days in the hospital on on a psychiatric hold. So he was he was telling the deputies who arrested him about this, and and that he was feeling suicidal. Uh, he told the intake nurse at the jail about his his history, um, and that he was feeling very hopeless. And over the next couple of days, according to the lawsuit. Uh, the deputies were actually listening to Mr. Morton as he as he kind of talked about just wanting to end his life, but the jail medical staff flagged him as a low risk of suicide, and he ultimately ended up uh, with basically a solitary confinement situation um, due to the jail's mandatory COVID nineteen quarantine for for new inmates. How does Morton's family say he should have been treated in jail? They, of course, wish the, the medical staff had taken his suicide threat seriously because he was also talking to his family on the phone uh, saying he wanted to end his life. Uh, you know, they wish he had been on suicide watch and that they had provided treatment for, for his depression and his addiction issues. What's the response you've gotten from the sheriff's department and the health care contractor, Liberty Healthcare? The sheriff's department declined to comment due to pending litigation. Uh, Liberty Healthcare, I didn't hear back from by my deadline, but I, I suspect that their response would have been the same to decline to comment. Now, is this case, and it was from last May, is this case being investigated by the County Citizen Law Enforcement Review Board? So the, the review board, uh, among its, its duties, is to investigate all in-custody deaths. And they were actually scheduled to discuss this case at their meeting this past Tuesday, but the executive officer of the board, Paul Parker, announced that they were going to pull the case from their agenda for further investigation. Um, and don't have many details beyond that, but I think it'll be on their September agenda. So at that point, we could see what it was they, they wanted to, to look into. Now, since the pandemic began, how have COVID restrictions and quarantines changed the lives of inmates in county jail? 
Yeah, so, so each person coming into the jail has to quarantine for seven days. And, and as I said earlier, it's, it's basically solitary confinement. They're, they're allowed out of their cell for only an hour a day. Um, I've heard it could sometimes be even less than that if the jail is short on, on staff. And uh, so on top of that, that mandatory quarantine, which also if they're, they're suspected to have come in to contact us with someone with covid they're back in quarantine. And for a little over a year, in-person visits were halted. They, they recently restarted. So people were pretty isolated from the outside world. And phone calls up until July, when the Board of Supervisors voted to make them free, those cost around $10 for a half-hour call. So yeah, like I said, it was, it was pretty t- tough to, to stay in touch with loved ones during the, the pandemic. Now, the lawyer for the Morton family says there was one thing done right in this case. He says the sheriff's deputies who delivered Morton to jail, they did tell personnel about his suicide threats. Is that a change for the department? Yeah, it's it's something that outside experts and attorneys have been pushing for, you know, just have deputies communicate with staff when someone arrives at the jail and say, you know, this person was making threats to harm themselves, you know, on the way over here, or we just think something's off about this person. And, and that worked in this case. And, and Chris Morris, the attorney uh, who's representing Mr. Morton's family, and he's handled a number of jail death cases. Here, here's what he told me. He said, for years, we've been pleading with the sheriff to develop a policy requiring deputies to relay to jail staff any information they have about an inmate's mental health condition, especially suicide. And in this case, they did that, Chris said. But then he went on to say that but medical staff failed to appropriately respond, appropriately respond to obvious signs that, that Joseph was in crisis. Uh, so instead of giving him meds and counseling, he was tossed into an isolation cell. And everyone knows that is the worst place for someone who is expressing a desire to harm themselves. Are there any resolutions that have come from any of these uh, many lawsuits that have been filed against the county because of suicides in San Diego County jails? I can't say that the the cases them, themselves resulted in anything. I mean, the, the lawyers often tell me that they, they try to get, you know, certain policy changes, but a lot of these cases have settled, you know, for, for millions of dollars. And um, I do have to say that the sheriff's department's policies on suicide prevention have improved over the years. But but as we see, you know, you could have the greatest policies in the world, but you need your staff to, to follow through on those policies. I've been speaking with uh, freelance writer Kelly Davis. Her report appears in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. A warning, this story includes references to sexual violence. A conviction of the Golden State Killer in Sacramento last year brought up fresh trauma for his victims from the 70s and 80s. Now one survivor in Sacramento has created a new space for other victims to break the silence around sexual assault in person and in her backyard. Cap Radio's Sammy Kaola went to see what it's all about. Chris Pedretti reported to police the night the Golden State Killer raped her in 1976, but she never discussed the details with her parents. She was 15 when it happened. My dad told us just to never, ever, ever speak about it. And we didn't, not even to each other. Even me and my sister didn't. Sitting in her backyard next to a water fountain, 
Pedretti says she stayed quiet about the crime for more than four decades. She says shame kept her from telling friends or seeking counseling. But when Northern California law enforcement started to revisit the Golden State Killer case, she sat her sister and husband down and told them her full story. That was in 2018. That was the day I began finding my way back to me. Pedretti started connecting with the serial rapist's other victims at his hearings and sentencing in Sacramento. I truly thought I would have been more than happy to live my life in denial, but I didn't realize how much shame I carried and how much coping mechanisms that weren't the healthiest. I didn't realize the toll that that takes. She got so much out of that support. She wanted more survivors to feel that way. And not just Golden State killer victims. In March 2020, Pedretti started a Facebook group that drew in nearly 600 people from all over the world. And in June, she started in-person gatherings for Sacramento area survivors in her home in Elk Grove. Let's take a break. Um, give a drink. If you guys you have those cards, when we come back, any questions? At the last gathering, a few dozen advocates, survivors, and their loved ones sat in clusters on the back patio. Each monthly meeting starts with brunch, followed by a keynote speaker, and then anyone is invited to take the mic. Uh, we do have someone that had written in, and she really wanted to be here, but Gay, who is our moderator, you all know Gay, she is going to read that statement for us. Pedretti says at the first gathering, eight people shared their stories. And then you find out that all those terrible things that you thought were going to happen when you, when you told your story don't happen. Carrie Angel says after she was raped 26 years ago, she felt isolated. But these meetings help. I'm in a group of people, and it's not, we're not freaks. <laughs> this happens to so many people, and they're afraid to say it. And why? Why? Because it just makes me more ashamed, and I'm not. Outside of this get-together, survivors say there should be more groups for sexual assault victims, like there are for alcoholics or people with chronic disease. Monica is a survivor who asked that we use only her first name for safety reasons. But there's more shame for assault, even though it wasn't our fault. You know, so I, I, I just don't understand. And when I think of shame and how, I guess, with the taboo with, with addicts, they, you know, have found a way to, like, promote more help for them and more acceptance. And I want to know how to brainstorm how that could be done for um, sexual assault victims, having that support without the shame. For now, Pedretti says she'll help as many people as she can, giving them the space to speak up when they feel ready. It's very liberating. And every time someone leaves feeling a little lighter or brighter, it just reinforces that we've got a lot of work to do. The monthly meetings will continue through the fall and then restart this spring. In Sacramento, I'm Sammy Kayola. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you 
through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. As the days go by, we're seeing more and more businesses start adding vaccine or negative COVID test requirements for customers. That includes art, music, and performance venues. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans has been keeping an eye on what some of these changes are. What could this mean for ticket holders, for staff, or performers, and how restrictions might be enforced? And she joins us now. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. So what are some of these venues that first announced significant changes, and what are those changes? Well, the first that I saw late last week were Signet Theater and Soda Bar, followed by the Belly Up, but it wasn't venue-wide for Belly Up. That was just for one particular show, Nico Case, but right away Belly Up kind of got grouped into that discourse. So at Soda Bar, in addition to now requiring face masks when audience members are not drinking, they're now checking for vaccination or a negative test from within 72 hours before you can even enter the venue. And this is also the case with Signet Theater. Moxie Theater is doing nearly the same, proof of vaccination plus a mask or proof of a recent negative PCR test and a mask, but they're also restricting audiences to be over the age of 12. That's just for the moment. Mm. And what was the reasoning behind it for these venues? In some part, it's practical, like doing their part to make sure that they don't see capacity restrictions or full-on closures again if these surges get worse. But for the most part, it's keeping the audiences and their performers safe and also their staff. Angie Ullman, who is one of the owners at Soda Bar, said that their mask and vaccine policy started with staff requests. Staff has been fully supportive. I mean, it was something that some of the staff had been asking for, and that's been great. Everybody's been really appreciative. Hmm. So with the announcement, I mean, that brings me to the next question. Are these restrictions being received with pushback from audiences? Yeah, so Signet spoke to KPBS shortly after announcing their policy. Jill Jones is Signet Theater's patron services manager who said they've only seen positive feedback. From just the people who have been coming for years, they are really excited about it because we're trying to keep the community as safe as possible. We've had a few people call in to buy tickets specifically because we announced this policy. And Soda Bar said it was all over the place. They were called plenty of names online, they told me. But ultimately, it was basically 95% positive. They do say that, uh, that small negative factions are, in fact, very loud online. And their talent buyer, Corey Sear, did say that a few support bands had to cancel because someone in the band may not have been vaccinated. But he did stress that that was nothing major and nothing they, they don't see often anyway. So what are their plans to enforce this? So Signet Theater, they have a little more time to figure out a plan since their first show isn't going to be until September 10th. Um, Soda Bar's Angie Ullman said that their staff will be at the door actively checking. You know, we'll have our security staff at the front door checking for vaccination, uh, looking for 
photos of people's vaccination cards, or hopefully people will be using the state QR code system, which I think is the easiest way to go about it. And, you know, we're sort of learning as we go. This is just new territory for us. And there aren't that many other places doing this yet for us to be, you know, learning from others that have gone before us. And we can understand that a nightclub music venue may already have systems in place to enforce this as in bouncers and security kind of already on their payroll and already equipped to handle ID checks, conduct enforcement and potential confrontations. But what about smaller theater companies or music halls? Right. You think about who the ticket checkers in theaters and classical performance halls are, and they're generally volunteer ushers and docents. The La Jolla Music Society's their summer fest is going on right now. So this is indoor classical music performances. And in terms of policy, they're keeping mask wearing voluntary, but they're asking all attendees, not just unvaccinated, to wear masks at all times when indoors. And it's really intentional that it is an ask. It's, it all comes down to what can be implemented. Most organizations like La Jolla Music Society are not equipped with a level of security that can enforce a mandate in a concert hall. So that's Todd Schultz, who is president of the La Jolla Music Society. He said that instead they've decided to go with a recommendation and a request. So what they're doing is they're taking this on a really personal level. Everyone is offered a disposable mask and people are approached individually if they're not wearing one. And before each show, Schultz will get up on stage and request that everyone puts their masks on. And yeah, most people do. He'll even reach out to people after the fact if there's an email address on file associated with a, with a ticket, with a seat. We are a participant in society, and we have a responsibility to play our role in doing our best to help others. And part of that is stepping up and putting in some restrictions that will help keep people safe. And I also asked Schultz if it was out of the question if they would hire security. And he, he did say that it would be an extremely remote possibility. And you found that some venues with less stringent policies have artists perform who have more restrictions. What are you seeing there and how are those venues handling it? Right. We spoke with Carol Wallace, who is CEO of San Diego Theaters. That's who runs the Balboa Theater and the Civic Theater. That was in June when we talked to them. And they told KPBS that they would not be having a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate. And since the landscape's changed so much since then, I followed up with them. And they're maintaining that masks or vaccines are not required in general. But the thing about that place is the vast majority of their shows are from outside presenters. So like Live Nation, for example, and they function more like a rental. So these artists and places like presenters like Live Nation have the capacity to announce their own requirements. There is a show from a stand-up comedian, Niemer, who is instantly raised in San Diego, and they've revised their COVID policy for that show. So guests will need to show proof of, of a vaccine to attend. They've been sending notes notices to ticket holders and offering refunds if a guest can't comply. And the Belly Up is another venue like that. They told me over email that they're following CDC, state and county guidelines, so requiring masks for people who are not fully vaccinated. Otherwise, masks are optional, but 
they're following, again, artist-specific requests. So people with tickets to that Nico Case show later this month, we all got an email saying proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within 48 hours would be required at the door. So, And then there's a request to also please wear a mask indoors. And what would your suggestions be to our listeners that may be planning on going to an arts venue in the near future? There's a few things that I'm hearing over and over again. And one is that this is such a fluid situation. I know we've been saying this for 18 months now, but everyone is learning. And all of these venues are really having to learn new skills like crisis communication or public health and, of course, security. So definitely be flexible and check with the venues regularly. Often they'll email updates to their ticket holders, but social media is sometimes the the best first place to check. And definitely be patient. (laughs) All right. Great advice there. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Jade. Surfing has moved from a laid-back part of Southern California culture to an Olympic event. The USA's Carissa Moore brought the first women's surfing gold medal back to Hawaii, where it started. Here in San Diego, the culture and history of surfing have been celebrated in many ways, most recently with an encyclopedic book about the past and present glory of San Onofre State Beach. David Matuzek is the author and publisher of San Onofre, Memories of a Legendary Surfing Beach. He spoke with Midday Edition guest host, Alison St. John. So now this book is one of the biggest books I've ever seen. It's 1,500 pages packed with photos and documents recording the the history and the culture of, of San Onofre. How long did it take you to put it together and why did you think it was important to document this history? Well, it's an eight-year project, and uh, most of that was after I retired from a 40-year teaching uh, career. And I had so many friends that were the pioneer surfers in California that were all in their late 80s and early 90s, and they had stories to tell. And I became uh, the person who chronicled uh, their lives in the earliest days of California surfing, going all the way back uh, to the 1930s. Now, I know you don't live right next to this beach, but you're still willing to get up at four in the morning to, to make the trek to spend the day there. What is it about this beach that keeps people like you coming back? Well, it's a magical place. Uh, it's, it's been described as a Shangri-La of surfing by many of the old surfers, um, The first surfers arrived in 1933 at San Onofre. Whitey Harrison and a group of surfers from Corona del Mar had spotted waves at San Onofre driving by, and they were actually coming back from a surf trip down in Baja, and they drove up to Corona del Mar, said, hey, we just saw some good waves at a place called San Onofre. They took two carloads of surfers in 1933, drove down to uh, San Onofre, and they documented the first surfing at San Onofre. What is it about the waves at San Onofre State Beach? How, how are they different from waves in, say, Northern California or Swamis, you know, here in San Diego? Well, one of the most uh, important things uh, about surfing, uh, the waves, is consistency. And San Onofre is world famous for the consistency of the waves. I mean, there's only probably three or four days out of the entire year 
where there is not a wave of some kind that you can ride. Now, of course, it hasn't always been a state park. Uh, the beach is sort of technically on Camp Pendleton. So how did the surfers manage to get the Marines to grant access to it when they were conducting military exercises there? Okay, well, the surfers had been surfing for nearly a decade prior to the arrival of the Marines in 1942. So they knew the value of the waves. And so they insisted on being allowed to come in and surf there beginning in 1942. And in At first, the Marines were reluctant to let them in, but because of the uh, decade-long history of surfing already there, the Marines granted a group of the surfers to surf only the area that we now call Old Man's, and they could only surf it if they regulated their own behavior. So eventually, in 1952, they formed the San Onofre Surfing Club, but they had a locked gate. Uh, It became a private uh, beach of sorts, and uh, many people uh, referred to it as the most exclusive club in the world. There there was a five-year waiting list to get into that surfing club. There were movie stars that couldn't get into it. And so between 500 and 1,000 surfers only were allowed in at that break. Now, the other locations along the beach, primarily trestles and church, were completely off limits because that's where the amphibious landing craft were training. And so that was a cat and mouse game of hide and seek between the surfers and the Marine Corps for decades there. <laughs> that that was sort of when the, the culture was at its height, though, at the end of the war, after the war. And you talk about a culture that was almost like a monastic order of beach bums who, you know, pretty much took vows of poverty and chastity. Was that part of the surf club culture? Well, that's the way it started. Before World War II, it was a group of wild singles for the most part. They were heavy drinkers, heavy partiers. Uh, There was certainly that beach bum uh, influence along the beach, but many of those surfers went off to war during World War II. And when they came back, uh, they got married, they began to raise families, and San Onofre transitioned from a wild singles surf club to a family beach. And now it's become world famous for its family aloha spirit. Now, President Nixon apparently was instrumental in getting the the beach to become part of a national park, which made it much more accessible to the the general public. How how was he involved? Well, in the 1970s, he was, of course, at the Western White House there on Cotton's Point, overlooking San Onofre. And uh, rumor has it that he asked his aides, why isn't that beach open? And he was told that it was private. And he said, well, let's find a way to get that open. Now, it didn't hurt that one of the members of that exclusive club, the San Onofre Surf Club, was his deputy attorney general. Uh-huh. So he was also in, in influential in, in making that happen. And some of the officers of the San Onofre Surfing Club met with President Nixon there uh, on the beach, and they actually gave him a, a surfboard for his daughter that was uh, inscribed uh, to him from the San Onofre Surf Club. And I have photographs of that meeting in the book. So, yes, it was uh, Nixon did play a role in opening up San Onofre to the public and making it a state park. And I guess that was a, a mixed blessing for the surf club, huh? which was pretty elitist in the sense that uh, now just anybody could show up, right? 
it, it really was. And at first, the, the surf club was furious about it. There was even talk of disbanding the surf club. There was talk of moving it to another beach. You know, you can't hardly blame them for decades. They had this place to themselves. And uh, in a very short order, that attitude changed. And uh, the surf club welcomed new members. And the surf club itself for decades has been instrumental in preserving the aloha spirit at, at San Onofre Beach. And they've also been very instrumental in keeping the beach primitive. That's another trademark of San Onofre. There's been l- very little development there. Uh, we didn't, and I'm a member of the club, have been for about 40 years. Uh, we have really tried to keep away from developing the beach and having it become something like uh, Doheny State Park, where there's a lot of concrete and and uh, uh, you know ornamental uh, plantings and so forth. And what you find when you drive down to, to Surf Beach, which is the beach where Old Man's and the Point is, you drive down onto a dirt road that parallels the beach, and you pull up and park right next to the sand. There's native. Uh, flora there along the the bluffs of San Onofre and it's it's very much in its natural surroundings the only development that has been made in uh, recent decades has been to put in restrooms uh, showers and uh, drinking fountains and that's pretty much it so do you have to be a surfer to want to read this book no not at all because the effect that surfing culture has had on southern California culture California culture and even American and worldwide culture has been profound. That was David Matuzak, author and publisher of San Onofre, Memories of a Legendary Surfing Beach, speaking with Allison St. John. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heidman. Ocean Beach band Boostive has paid their dues over the last decade, making music and touring and, as they say, slow cooking their musical gumbo to create a unique blend of world music, R&B, and dub. The core members have been friends for over a decade, but Boostive has built a collective of vocalists, horn players, and percussionists to expand their range while maintaining their signature Boostive sound. Boostive already has much to show for their hard work. They've collaborated with Mattis Yahoo, toured with Lee Scratch Perry, and most recently were signed to the band Slightly Stupid's record label, Stupid Records. Boostive joins us today. Let's begin with their latest single, C.I. Choose 
Members of Boostive, join me now. We start with Seiji Como, bass and guitar. Davina Dub is the vocalist. And Nathan Elias Kosovar on keyboard and sax. Dylan Weber, guitar and bass. Malachi Johnson, drums and percussion. Wesley Etienne, trumpet and trombone. Hey, thank you all for being with us today. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, what's up? Yo, yo. Thanks so much for having us. Hey. Very excited. Great. Terrific. So, Seiji, let me start with you. Because uh, <laughs> what I understand is, like, the core of this group is you, Nathan, and Dylan. So when did you meet these guys? I met Dylan in junior high. And then I met Nathan through Dylan. Uh, I think we started making music together in high school. And Dylan, how did you get, first get into music? I met Nathan in, like, fifth grade. And he played guitar, and he got me into guitar. So did you, did you like, bond because you were all into music, or was music secondary? No, it was, like, equal interest in girls and guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how lots of bands start. <laughs> yeah. So, Nathan, so you were the one who played guitar. How did you start your musical journey? I was fortunate enough to have my parents put me into piano when I was in first grade. And I stuck with that until I started the saxophone in fourth grade and then picked up the guitar in fifth grade. And I showed Dylan some stuff on the guitar and it wasn't long till he was running circles around me on the guitar. Thus, I'm, I'm playing saxophone keyboard now. <laughs> but Nathan, you <laughs> teach music now, right? Correct. I'm at Roosevelt International Middle School in Balboa Park. And I, I teach choir, band, orchestra, and guitar. And since the pandemic, digital music and production. And Seiji, what music, if you can think back, inspired you when you were growing up? When I was growing up, it was stuff my dad was listening to, stuff like Funkadelic, just all the George Clinton, Earth, Wind and Fire, where G-Funk came from, where all the hip hop samples came from, was my first real musical influence. And then when I got older, when I met Dylan, and uh, Nathan, I think we were listening to like a lot of Thievery Corporation and Bonobo and kind of chill out, but still have that heavy backbeat to it. So I think we all kind of vibed on that style of music. And when we first started creating music, we were kind of going in that kind of down tempo, ethereal kind of music. Now we're going to meet Davina Dub, your vocalist now, but actually Boostive has collaborated with uh, quite a few vocalists over the years. That seems to reflect, uh, you know, your many blends of music. Uh, tell us, Seiji, tell us how that works, working with different vocalists and different kinds of music. Well, we were fortunate enough to start in Santa Cruz and the time that we were up there just was a hub for so many musical artists that are actually doing big things now. But we were all up there at the same time and everyone was kind of just starting their musical careers and wanted to collaborate with everybody. And I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, but it's a pretty special place. And everyone up there just likes to create together. So most of those features that you hear in those first albums are just people we knew from uh, Santa Cruz. We're gonna hear the song Deo de Toast Stalemate. Why don't we hear a little of it and then you can tell us about it.
so depressed and I didn't know what to do So I threw the anger on you and now I feel like a fool Now I feel like a fool's fool Lost my best friend and I ain't in the mood to lose too Little too late for apologies so I'm sorry we couldn't do it like a duet In perfect harmony I'm too out of tune Symphony got disrupted a beautiful thing to lose And I threw it away for nothing I should be ashamed of something Only reason I'm not cause when you exercise your thoughts You're running away from running away from you To negate the truth don't make it true that's funny cause you help me build all the walls I be breaking through just to communicate with you Know I might be wrong but I gotta lift you up inside these songs cause I know I let you down That was Deo Ditto Stalemate featuring Al Bundy and Lindsay Olsen, two members of the band who are not with us today, but Bustav is here. And so, Seiji, tell us more about this song. We got Al Bundy on vocals and uh, Lindsay Olsen also on vocals. That song came together pretty quick. It's actually like a mashup of two songs that I made and then brought it to the band and we all kind of put our input into it and made it what it is. And Malachi, uh, did you join the band when they came down here to San Diego? I joined the band three years ago. So they had been around for a little bit. I'd actually seen them a few times before I joined the band. I had already made up my mind before I even met them that I wanted to play with them. So like getting to do it was just that much more special. Wesley, um, were you into this kind of music before you joined this band, or is this a, a new turn in your musical journey? I started off playing classical, and then I moved to jazz. I started off playing in, in church. But my father played in a band called Scorpio de Haiti. It, it's very similar uh, with horn styles and phrasings, and the music definitely inspired me a little more, and I just had to keep on playing with them since I started in 2016. Now, I've got to ask you guys, you've accomplished quite a lot as a band, one of which was touring with Lee Scratch Perry, who's often considered the godfather of dub music. But let's just, for everybody's sake, Seiji, can you first tell us what dub music is? I think the, the, the person to tell you about that would be Nathan. He's, a, he's the biggest dub enthusiast of, of all of us. So we should let Go him for it. take that question. Yeah, so I view dub music as an exploration into sound. And the origins come from Lee Scratch Perry and King Tubby taking pre-recorded music, putting it through a mixing board and starting to use the mixing board as an instrument and exploring the possibilities of dropping different instruments in and out, uh, usually making the vocals drop out and other elements of the rhythm section while keeping the drums and bass and then exploring different effects to expand and develop an idea.
this exploration can can definitely draw similarities to elements of meditation in the way that things go out and come back in and you find this space to think and these techniques and this development of music has has had a huge effect on the entire development of electronic music and and DJing comes from this history of developing the mixing board as an instrument. And how do you guys use dub? Do you use your own tracks or do you borrow? We dub our own tracks. We've had some other people dub our tracks, but yeah, we mostly use our own tracks and and redub our our own music. Seiji, what was it like to tour with the Godfather of Dub? It was uh surreal um i just told him that i love him and i appreciated everything he did for for music and for me um got to meet his new musical director uh Emsh of subatomic sound he's helped us a lot he's done some of the mixing and mastering and he's given me a bunch of tips in my own mixing it was definitely life-changing to to meet those cats and uh learn their techniques and just watch them and see how important music is not only just to listen to but spiritually for uh, Lee and uh, it's something I think we all took from that tour. Let me turn to Davina. Now Davina your voice fits so seamlessly into this band. How did you discover your voice? Well my dad was a musician growing up so I was just surrounded all the time. They said I could sing before I could talk supposedly. Okay, we're about to listen to the song Running. What can you tell us about it, Davina? The lyrics are just kind of like believing in yourself more and realizing, recognizing your own potential. Okay, so let's yeah. hear it. This is Running by Boosted. So you think that you run out of all of your love. So you feel lost. Now which direction will this save That was the song Running from Boostive, featuring vocals by Davina Dub. 
Now, you guys just got signed to Ocean Beach Band's Slightly Stupid's record label, and congratulations for that. I, I guess, you know, as kids who grew up in OB, Slightly Stupid must have been a big influence of yours. Is that right, Seiji? Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely one of our first big influences. We all kind of were covering their music when we were Groms and, you know, the hometown hero thing. And it's nice to, uh, to link with them on uh, these last few releases. And do you have a new album coming out soon? We have a bunch of stuff in the works. We are planning to release it in the, in the next year here. So be on the lookout for that. Okay, well, I want to thank you all for taking the time out and speaking with us and sharing your music with us. I've been speaking with Seiji Como, Davina Dub, Nathan Elias Kosovar, Dylan Weber, Malachi Johnson, and Wesley Etienne, members of the band Boostive. Everybody, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Close inside this dream with me